My soul in sad exile was out on life's sea, so burdened with sin and distress, till I heard a sweet voice saying, make me your choice, and I entered the heaven of rest. I in the haven of rest I'll sail the wide seas no more The tempest may sweep O'er the wild stormy deep In Jesus I'm safe evermore I yielded myself fell off and I anchor my soul the haven of rest is my Lord I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest I'll sail the wide seas no more the tempest may sweep O'er the wild stormy deep, in Jesus I'm safe evermore. Oh, come to the Savior, He patiently waits to save by His power divine. Come, anchor your soul. In the haven of rest And say, my beloved is mine I've anchored my soul In the haven of rest I'll sail the wide seas no more The tempest may sweep O'er the wild stormy deep, in Jesus I'm safe evermore. Amen. What a great song that is. Amen. The Haven of Rest. We go down to the Haven of Rest once every month on a Thursday night and uh, minister down there and... Uh, uh, my uh, dad heads that ministry up, and uh, Brother Dean goes down there on a regular basis and sings and shares as well. And boy, they just, uh, uh, Mrs. Smith's down there playing the piano, and just a lot of good things taking place down at the Haven of Rest. And, uh, uh, you know, here we sing about it, but there's literally a place called that here in Akron, and it's for people that are in need, and uh, we're certainly glad we can be a part of that. Well, Acts chapter 8 again, we're going to consider and talk a little bit more about Christ today. And again, we've been noting uh, things about Him over the last few weeks, and uh, we're going to go ahead and do that again today. Again, as we look at the passage here in chapter 8 again, we know that Philip was uh, 
told to join up with the Ethiopian. And uh, while he joins up with them, he recognizes the fact that he's reading in a particular portion of Scripture. Uh, he begins to uh, share with him some things. And um, the Bible tells us in chapter 8, verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, began, began at the same Scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. <clears throat> now, Again, the question that is asked early on in the book of Acts by this particular uh, Ethiopian is, you know, how can I understand except some man guide me? And he recognized his need of understanding. And, you know, there's so many people that are in need of understanding. It's not that they're, <clears throat> it's not that they're stupid, but they're ignorant. And someone says that there's a difference? Absolutely. Someone that's ignorant just doesn't know any better. Uh, somebody that's stupid might even know better, but just could care less. Now, all, all I know here is that we have a man that is in need of understanding. And he's reading a passage right out of the Bible, probably like you and I both have done on a number of occasions, and he's saying, what in the world am I reading? I mean, what does this mean? <laughs> Philip says, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand what you're looking at there? Well, how can I except some man guide me? What? I mean, how am I supposed to know what it is? I mean, I mean, how, how am I supposed to figure that out? And so Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You know, everywhere we turn in the word of God, we find him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere we turn. And I know some passages aren't directly uh, addressing him, you know, personally, but they do address him somehow, some way. Because, you know, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, he says. So we have the word of God, and in this case, Philip begins to open his mouth, and he preaches unto him Jesus. And that's what we've been dealing with. I mean, how are we to share Christ with others if we don't know anything about him? How are we to be effective in presenting him if we're not really sure about him? and who he was, and what his purpose was. And so, over these last weeks, we looked at his origin, we considered his birth, we addressed his mission, and we looked at his life. We even considered his death. And today, we want to talk about his burial. And they will even get on to his resurrection, we'll see. But we've just been kind of following the life of Christ here, trying to learn a little bit more about him so that we can be more effective in reaching our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is so easy to be distracted from the real need today. It is so easy to lose sight of why Jesus came. And again, it's much more comfortable to overlook this reality that we are here to continue the work that Christ began and that is to reach a world with him and it, it's it's more comfortable listen I, I don't I don't care what anybody tells you. Uh, you I could stand up here and tell you it's so easy to reach out to the world with the gospel I'll tell you what I'd rather teach a Sunday school class any day of the week than go out and knock doors 
man, I would, I, I'd rather sit down with a couple people and talk about the Bible when they want to talk about the Bible than to go take that gospel to somebody that may reject me and the message that I'm sharing. It's not hard. If you're really shy, you say, well, it's difficult for me to stand in front of people. That's fine. But if somebody comes talks to you that you know well and that you appreciate and you love and they love the Lord, you love the Lord, and you're talking about the Lord, that's not hard. But when you're trying to talk about the Lord to people that you don't know for sure whether or not they will be excited about that or not, that's intimidating. That's not always easy. And yet that's what this is all about. That's what we're here to do is to reach a world with the gospel and then ultimately help them get to the place, train them and teach them to do the same thing. In this case, we've considered a number of aspects of Christ in his life. But today we want to look at his burial and then his resurrection if given opportunity. So let's have a moment of prayer and then we'll just consider that tonight. In Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord, asking that you just bless us. We are grateful for our Lord and Savior. We are so thankful that he willingly laid down his life on our behalf. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us the privilege and opportunity to continue your work here. We know you left the disciples and they in turn reproduced themselves in the lives of others, which has ultimately led us to today. And here we stand or sit, and Father, we are enjoying you because of their faithfulness. Help us, Lord, to be able to share with others the very message that you shared as well as your disciples shared so that this message will continue to change and transform lives so that the next generation will have you too. Father, we again appreciate you giving us this chance and opportunity. Bless the service, and Lord, may it all be to your glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Jesus died unusually fast, at least as far as crucifixion was concerned. It was not uncommon for the Roman soldiers to ultimately go along and break the legs of the malefactors so that they could no longer push up and take those deep breaths that we talked about last week. Ultimately, they would suffocate, and that's exactly what happened on a cross. You eventually would suffocate. And so breaking the legs would hasten that process and lead to death. Jesus Christ was already dead, though. Life had already left. He had already gave up the ghost, the Bible says. So the soldiers didn't break his legs And that was prophesied, as a matter of fact. In Psalm chapter 34, verse 20, the Bible says, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Think with me for a moment. If they would have broken Jesus' legs, then the prophecy would not have been fulfilled, which would have meant that the Word of God that you and I rely upon, that we build our lives upon, wouldn't be worth its... Wait in paper. But he didn't have any bone broken. 
what we do know is that he had his side pierced. But that too was prophesied. In Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. As we read through the Old Testament and we note the prophets, we must be always aware that once again, Jesus Christ is being addressed and dealt with in those prophecies. Not every single thing that is said is directly pointed to him, but everything has a place. And in this case, when it talks about the fact that they would look upon me, whom they have pierced, it may seem the prophet's talking of himself could be very true. But he's also referring to none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus endured the agony of the cross, and then he ultimately died on it. And at this very point, we are introduced now to a character by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He's spoken of in each of the Gospels, and that's not always common, by the way. Not every situation, not every account is relayed in every single one of the Gospels. But in this particular case, this Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in every single one of the Gospels. According to the biblical record, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He was a good and a just man. He was an honorable counselor, the Bible tells us. And he was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but secretly, the Bible says, for fear of the Jews. It's believed that Joseph was a voting member of what was called the Sanhedrin, or a governing body of the Jews. This particular governing body wanted Jesus Christ condemned to death. We know that the Bible tells us that Joseph did not consent to that action. He wasn't part of that crowd. He, he was still there and he was privy to it, but he did not consent to it. He was an undercover Christian, if you will. i got to believe that he feared the consequences of a coming out party. i got to believe that he was concerned about taking a bold stand for Jesus Christ. He probably feared losing his position or maybe his preeminence in that particular group of people or that group of men. He probably feared being identified as a follower of Christ, being called then a fanatic or maybe a fundamental Christian. He feared the idea of maybe being misunderstood or viewed as ignorant and misguided. So, Joseph was a disciple who was one in secret. I mean, nobody at work knew he was a Christian. His family wasn't really aware of it. They knew he went to church, maybe, but they weren't aware that he had a relationship with the Master. They didn't, they weren't privy to the fact that he actually believed in and was convinced that Jesus Christ was more than a mere man. He was undercover. Let's be honest. I mean, probably every one of us at some point in our life, maybe not at this point, but maybe at some point, found ourselves in the same category. You know, disciples, but secretly for fear. Afraid to take that bold stand to literally let people know we were a child of God, that we were unashamedly Christ. Well, all that ended 
the day that Jesus Christ died. That all ended. Joseph was probably at the cross. It's likely that he was there beholding that whole event and he listened to the Savior and he, he watched as the Savior's life left his body. As Jesus took his final breath and said, It is finished. It's likely that Joseph Arimathea heard those words. And once Christ finished his redemptive work on Calvary, Joseph of Arimathea sprung into action. I mean, his fear obviously gave way to a holy boldness. Obviously, something changed in him. He got this supernatural courage to stand on behalf of Christ. And we find that he, for, for a moment, said, You know what? I don't care what the world thinks. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to do something on behalf of my Lord. I'm going to stand up for Jesus. And so, this undercover Christian came out of the cloak of secrecy and he sought the body of Christ from Pilate. Do you know that no one can embrace the Lord in secret, really? You know, we really can't do that. I mean, he hung publicly on our behalf, and we must publicly and unashamedly embrace him before all the Bible says. Romans chapter 10. Turn there if we would, please. Romans 10, verse 11. This passage has at times truly convicted me. It's burned in my heart. It's caused me even at times at some point in the past to wonder as to whether or not or how genuine my faith really was. For the scripture saith, verse 11, chapter 10 of Romans, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. I may not have publicly come out at points in my life and said, oh, I'm ashamed of Christ. But I can honestly say, like Joseph of Arimathea, there were times when I knew I should have passed out a track or should have been a better witness or should have made sure people knew who I was and what I was all about, and I held out or withheld for fear. See, I'm not convinced that Joseph of Arimathea, though, shed his fear. I don't think that all of a sudden he had this holy boldness, which meant that he wasn't afraid at all of what the consequences or the repercussions of his faith would be. No, I just think that he embraced the master in a different way. I believe that all of a sudden the need of the hour outweighed his fear. Have you ever been in a place where you were afraid but all of, and, and what would have normally kept you from engaging maybe in conflict or kept you from doing what you were going to do? The fear held you back. But then all of a sudden something happened that caused you to say, forget it. I can't anymore. The need's too great. Someone's got to do something. And you spring into action. I mean, you wouldn't, a mom wouldn't normally go in, in, into the midst of a, a, a ravenous crowd, so to speak, and to save their child. But the fact is, I mean, to, I mean to, to, to deal with someone or to help someone else out, but if it was their son or daughter sitting in the middle of that crowd, they'd go in there and fight everybody tooth and nail because the need would outweigh their fear. 
That's all I'm saying. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I mean, I, I as a parent wouldn't want nothing to do with a, a bee's nest or a hornet's nest or a wasp's nest. But I guarantee if my child was being stung over and over again and screaming and shrieking for help, I would run into the midst of that thing and knock it around and do whatever I could to misdirect or misguide those things to me instead of the child. Now, normally my fear would say, stay away from that. I want nothing to do with that. But you know what? The need would be greater than my fear. And you know what? This is what I believe Joseph of Arimathea experienced. I still think he was afraid. I still think that he was concerned for his future in one sense. I'm sure that when he thought about it logically, he knew that there would possibly be repercussions. As a matter of fact, historically, or history says that it's possible, and some have said that he actually ended up in prison or jail because of his bold stand for Christ. Now, how's that happen? Because there come a point where he realized that the need was greater than his fear. We all war with this, don't we? We all face it at one level or another. But we need to always remember that the need is greater than our fear. Why is it that we won't witness to a family member until they're on a deathbed? You want to know why? Because at that point, the need is greater than our fear. We go, this is it. This is the last hurrah. We either address the issue or we'll stand ashamed before the Lord. Either we deal with it or His blood will be on our hands. Or we deal with it or they'll end up in a devil's hell without any hope. I've got to do something. I've got to do it now. And the need's greater than our fear. We cannot afford to stand by as the world mocks and curses our Lord and do nothing. We cannot remain silent in the face of such injustice. The need is greater than our fear tonight. And the Lord will give us grace if we'll only be obedient to Him. Although Joseph of Arimathea had attempted to keep his love for Jesus a secret, he still boldly went to Pilate and he asked for the body. And then he places Jesus' body in his tomb. According to Matthew, there were those who did listen to the Lord. Surprisingly, though, it was his enemies. His enemies listened to him. You say, what do you mean? Well, they listened carefully to his words and they decided to take action to ensure that no plan could be concocted to pull off or to validate who he really was. See, he had predicted to rise again, did he not? He had said he would. He made it very public. He shared it with his disciples, and he shared it with others. But wait a second. It's interesting to note that there wasn't one disciple there at the tomb. And yet the authorities placed a guard at the tomb to ensure the body would not be stolen and thought to have resurrected. See, they listened to the Savior while it seems many of his followers and all of them did not really listen. Or at least they didn't believe. Matthew chapter 27, turn there, would you please? 
27, verse 62. In chapter 27, verse 62, it says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came unto together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver, uh, that, that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. See, they remembered. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. <laughs> hey, that's smart thinking. I mean, nobody rises from the dead. Nobody literally dies and lives again. I mean, he's just a man, right? The enemies looked at him and they said, listen, we heard him say that, so we better put a guard on it now because you know what they're going to try to do. They're going to try to validate who he was by stealing his body and saying he rose from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, you have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Hmm. And yet there wasn't one of his disciples there. Look in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. The Lord made it perfectly clear to them what was going to happen. And yet, they weren't there. Mark 10, 32, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And He took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto Him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him, shall spit upon him and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. Now, it's interesting to note that every single thing that he said there happened exactly like he said it would, and yet when it all happened before the eyes of the disciples, they still were not in their place that morning. So Jesus' body rested within the tomb, guarded by soldiers. But again, we know that Jesus was no mere man. Jesus was God. <laughs> you know that there is never a time when the will of man can hinder the word of God. Isn't that an amazing thought? There is never a time when the will of man can hinder the word of God. Man can combine all forces against the Lord. He can do all that, everything humanly possible to change time or to change the future or to change the word of God. But the fact is, Christ need only speak and the efforts of man are brought to naught. Look, if you will, to the book of Psalm, chapter 2, verse 1. An amazing passage, really. In the book of Psalm, chapter 2, verse 1, 
He begins by saying, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That sounds familiar. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. I mean, can you imagine for just a moment to to literally rage against God, to imagine these vain things, and then to take counsel together against the Lord, to somehow plod and prod and try to somehow uh, overthrow the Lord. And yet we do it all the time in our culture and our society today. I mean, what is evolution? That's exactly what evolution is. It's men and women who literally take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. They say there's no way there's a God, there's no way there was a Jesus. It's all fabricated, it's all fake, it's all baloney. Let us break their bands asunder. We don't need them to oversee us. We don't need their supernatural intervention. We don't need their divine divine, uh, uh, intervention at all. No, we don't need God in the least. And the Bible says, in the book of Psalm, right there, he that sitteth in heaven shall laugh. That's a different side to the Lord that we don't talk much about, isn't it? You know, the side that we see of Jesus and the side that we often emphasize is the side that says He's compassionate, He's brokenhearted, and He's so distraught by those who reject Him. But wait a second, there comes a point where Jesus says, You made your bed and I lay in it. It's really amazing to me when a child will continue to disobey mom and dad and then it's time for a spanking and they'll act like mom and dad are meanie meanies because they follow through with what they said they would do. Mom and dad aren't mean at all, young men, young ladies, children. No, mom and dad are love you and they're expressing their love by saying it's not, we're not going to permit you to continue to live in rebellion. We're going to show you that it doesn't pay, that there are consequences for sin. You know, they're just doing you a favor. And may I say that there comes a point where every parent grows a little weary with a child who will not, will not obey, will not yield and submit to the authority that God's placed over them. And may I say also that God grows weary also. And His patience wears out. There will come a day that this will all be fulfilled. Every effort of man focused against the Lord, is in vain. You never win when you battle against Him. When you fail to submit and surrender to the Lord, if I fail to do so, if you fail to do so, we always lose. So they shirt up the tomb. And they placed a number of guards about it. But every precaution in the world could not keep Jesus in the grave. (laughs) They just couldn't do it. Matthew chapter 28, verse 2 says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. 
His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. I want you to see it. Here it is. He's not there. Matthew chapter 28 verse 11 says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city. They showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. You've got to understand that in those days, if a guard was placed upon a tomb like that, and they failed in their mission, and that body was stolen, their lives were on the line. It was likely they would not go home that day. They would no longer see their wives or enjoy their children. They would no longer take sup with their family. No, they would be dead because they failed in their mission. The Bible says that they did go to the chief priests and, and they shared all things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money into the soldiers. This is very unusual, mind you. Saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. We'll make sure it's all okay. We won't allow him to harm you or hurt you. You just say that while you were sleeping, that you fell asleep on the job, and they came and stole him while you were sleeping. And if, if they find out, if, if they find out about this, the, your bosses, so to speak, we'll stand up for you. We'll secure you. Keep you safe. So they took the money and did as they were taught. Boy, there's a message there, by the way. How often have we taken the money and just did what we were taught? But anyway, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews into this day. So they're so desperate to discount the resurrection of Christ that they paid the soldiers this large sum of money to say that the body was stolen. But it wasn't. <laughs> he had risen, as he said. Not only did Jesus rise, though, but the Bible tells us that other Old Testament saints did as well. Look, if you will, Matthew chapter 27. Man, this is just kind of blows my mind. I'm not 100% sure if I can explain this one. But let's go ahead and take a look at it. Matthew chapter 27, verse 52. The Bible says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and come out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. They went into Jerusalem. To Jerusalem, that's the holy city. I mean, who were these who walked the streets of the holy city? The Bible tells us that Jesus had led captivity captive. At least 
Ephesians 4.8 tells us that. Having provided payment for sin, the sin of the world, He paved the way for everyone to enter into the very presence of God. Look in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. A very familiar passage, and one of which you'll recognize immediately when you begin to read or hear it read. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. What we find here are two compartments. We see here that they are somehow, some way connected, or at least they are on the same plane. So what happens is, is that Lazarus dies, and so does the rich man. The rich man opens his eyes, being in hell, and he can look across and see... Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. So it appears that there are two compartments. There's a paradise side where we have the Lazarus, the beggar, just living it up, kicking back, relaxing, while on the other side we have this fiery inferno in a place the Bible calls hell. The rich man. He can see Abraham's bosom. He can see paradise. He can even see the beggar who he recognizes. So obviously when we die, there's something about our soul that is reflective of ourselves. Our soul must have some sense of material or consistency, some kind of something. I can't put my finger on it but there's a soulish body then. These compartments now that existed in those days now have changed. Because when Jesus died and led captivity captive, we know He didn't empty hell and take them to heaven because that's still there today. What we know is that He led those that were in Abraham's bosom or paradise Those are the saints, those Old Testament saints that had performed the sacrifices, that had followed the plan of God in the Old Testament. They were now ushered out of that paradise and ushered into heaven. But along the way, they made a stop, it seems. Again, I don't know how it all went down, but it sure reminds me of kind of like a four and five year old class when the doors are jar and it's left unguarded. And before you can even blink, the children are on the run. And i got to believe it was kind of like that. You know, the door of paradise was opened up, supernaturally opened, and some of the saints just burst out onto the earth. (laughs) They couldn't help but stroll down the streets of Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus is trying to gather him up. Hey, come on, guys, let's go. You know, we get Donald. You know, the Father's waiting. Come on, let's go. <laughs> I don't know. You want to talk about a strange day. 
That was a strange day. Not only had Christ risen, but now others are seen walking about. Can you imagine? You run outside and, and, and all of a sudden you, 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 you go out into the streets and you're, oh my God, that's aunt and uncle. You, honey, honey, you run back inside and you tell your wife, you say, come out here. I, I swear I seen Uncle John and Aunt Mary. Oh, sure you did. No, I mean it. They were just out here. That was a strange day indeed. So Jesus Christ is buried and he resurrects. But when he resurrects, he leads captivity captive. And these show up. The graves turn upside down, so to speak, and open up. And these Old Testament saints are found walking about in the streets. Strange day. The resurrection of Christ was a glorious manifestation of divine power, wasn't it? Just simply amazing. What it did was it proved Christ to be who He claimed to be. The resurrection verified every claim He ever made. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the Bible says, "...and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead." The fact is, is that if there was no resurrection power, there'd be no salvation today. None. If Jesus could not keep his word and rise again, surely his promises to raise us up would have been in vain. All lost. But not only did he provide salvation for you and I, but we know that he died with Christ. But we know that we died with Christ that day as well once we were saved. And you know, we, according to the Bible, rose again to walk in newness of life. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 4, we read about that. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1, we read about it. He says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead, but now we're made alive. Romans 6, 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Boy, I just want you to know, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, things are, all things are become new. See, the old you, the, the sinner that you were, the enemy of God that you once were, the enemy of God that I once was, died that day that I was saved and died the day you were saved. And you are resurrected, a new creature in Christ. Raised again. The old you's dead, the new you lives. And may I say, just as we close this tonight, it's important that you remember that always. If there is one thing we struggle with as believers, it's our past. We look at our lives and we go, we go back to our past and we say, there's no way God could use me. I mean, if only you knew what I have done, if only you knew what's happened to me, if only you realized how worthless and useless and how wicked and sinful I was in my past, you'd know why. I can't be used of God the way you want me to be used. That is all the lie of a devil who is the father of all lies. He'll be glad to discourage you in that way, mind you. He'll tell you that you're still powerless to overcome that sin or vice in your life. He'll tell you that you're still a big nothing, a big nobody, that you're insignificant not only in the eyes of God, but even in the eyes of others. He'll tell you that. 
He'll do all that he can to leave you feeling hopeless and helpless. Even though you have literally the God of glory living inside you, even though you are no longer the same person you were, even though you're a new creature in Christ, he'll tell you that you're still that old loser. Just remember, you're not the sinner you used to be, nor are you the helpless victim of fate or the victim of your cult, or victim of your upbringing or the victim of your society. You're endowed with supernatural resurrection power. And if this power could overcome death itself, it can definitely overcome any obstacle in your life. We thank the Lord for His death, yes. We're glad that He was buried. But I think we're even more thankful that He rose again. It offers everyone, every last one of us hope like never before. May God help us to never let the devil or anyone else tell us that we're zero. Not if we got God in us. And we do. Not if we're that new creature that he created in Christ Jesus. And we are. No, you're somebody today. And God can use you because you're a creature. A new creature. A man or woman that God has literally indwelt. Lives inside of. And has empowered and enabled you to walk in newness of life. Let's start walking according to that new life and not be bound by the old. Father, we come to you.